This is MQ's Open Mind, the show where we look at the science behind mental health and its potential to transform lives. I'm Lucy Horton. In 2007, Matt Barlow, a firefighter, was driving a fire engine when he was involved in a collision. Sadly, a man was seriously injured as a result of the crash. In the years that followed, Matt experienced some severe mental health problems before finally seeking help and starting his road to recovery. I met Matt with his therapist, Dr. Jem Wilde, at the University of Oxford to speak about his own experience of PTSD and the intervention Jen is creating to prevent mental health problems from occurring in emergency workers. To start the podcast, I want to ask the one question you'd like answered above all others about mental health. For me, it's the, the resources available to not only the public, but to firefighters, um, paramedics, police, coast guards. Why isn't there more resources there for us? And Jen? I think there's so many questions in mental health, but one question that I'm very passionate about is how, how can we prevent mental health problems from beginning in the first place? A lot of mental health problems actually begin in adolescence, a lot of the anxiety problems. Post-traumatic stress disorder is different. It uh, starts after a trauma. So if somebody has a trauma in adulthood, obviously it's much more likely to start in adulthood. Mm-hmm. Um, how can we prevent these problems from developing and protect people who are in high-risk occupations or, or who are high-risk individuals. Yeah, which is exactly what your intervention is looking at, that prevention side of things, isn't it? So Matt, I'd really like to ask you about your life as a firefighter and to talk about your own mental health experiences. So can you tell me a bit about how long you've been a firefighter? So I've been employed by Oxfordshire Fire and Rescue Service for 16 years now. So I've done jobs through my life. Uh, so I've been in the forces. Yeah. Um, I did a year as an ambulance technician and now I'm a firefighter. So when did your mental health problems begin? So in 2007, uh, December 13th, um, I was responding to a fire call in a truck and there was a collision between myself and two other vehicles. Um, And it was a few days after that I started experiencing certain symptoms like lack of sleep, um, not eating, not looking after myself. And it was quite, um, I knew something was wrong and I just didn't, I think I was quite conscious of the fact that the people I work with, they're my peers, they're people who trust me, trust them. So it was quite hard for me to, to come out and tell people I was having problems and I was struggling. So I kind of just batted it off for quite a long time. And at what point did you decide that you you were going to tell someone and uh, who did you decide to tell? It was quite a um, quite a moment. I had, I've got two children and I was asleep on the sofa and I'd had a nightmare. Um, and the, when I woke up, the children weren't there. They'd gone to the bedroom. And when I went to see where they were, um, it was quite evident they were, they were a bit distressed, a bit upset by what they'd heard and seen. So um, that for me, that was that, that was that. Um, that point where I just thought enough's enough. Um, so I phoned someone I knew and I trusted and um, they said to me, okay, we'll leave it with us, we'll sort it out. So you've talked about uh, nightmares and not eating. What other symptoms oh, um, were there for you? I became quite reclusive. Um, my fight or flight was, I was always flight. I would run and hide. Um, I didn't want to talk about the situation. Um, I didn't want to interact with people. Um, so when we had nights out and things like that, we wouldn't go. Um, I started wearing headphones quite a lot so I didn't have to interact with people, loud music. Um, my, my relationships were breaking down because just because of the constant guilt because um, I honestly thought that it was my fault that I'd, I'd caused someone some harm. Um, so look, not looking after myself, um, it was quite difficult. I enjoyed going to work and I knew I had to look after myself to be at work. So I, 
I would make sure I was clean shaven and things like that. But those days when I wasn't at work, um, I would stop looking after myself straight away. I wouldn't go out to the gym. I wouldn't socialise. Um, I was quite snappy. Um, I was irritable. No sleep. Nightmares. Um, at the worst point, there was things like um, I would find myself waking up at where the incident happened, not realising how I'd got there. Um, oh. Shoes off. You know, I'd cross a major road and no one had batted an eyelid. I didn't realise. So it got to a point where it was massively affecting every part yeah. of my life. But I became quite deceptive with other people because I'd hid it for so long. So how long did it take you before you sought help? Two years. Yeah. Well, uh, after the initial crash, we you get given a counsellor. I got six sessions with a counsellor. And I was quite conscious of the fact that I was on a list to be a whole-time firefighter. So I kind of played the game a bit. Uh, so I didn't get out of the sessions really what I needed. So how did work react when you eventually... I've been... I've been quite fortunate with in the fire service that people I've um, spoken to have been, I would say, outstanding managers. I'm not sure I was perhaps the first one in the fire service in Oxfordshire to actually come out and say I'm having some problems. Really? And for to be diagnosed with PTSD, there's more now since. I've been quite lucky as a firefighter to have managers that have been there and, and to offer me the kind of support that I needed. These uh, symptoms that Matt talked about, Jen, of nightmares or even waking up at the point where the trauma happened, is that quite common for people with PTSD? The symptoms Matt describes are really common with people with PTSD. And, and interestingly, um, if Matt were to go to his GP and say that he was having sleep problems, um, the thought that he was suffering from PTSD wouldn't be the first thing that came to mind in the GP's head it would probably be that he had sleep problems. It's very difficult to diagnose PTSD because some of the presenting symptoms are very similar to depression. Matt also had depression. Um, some of those symptoms overlap with the depression. Um, and some of the most troubling symptoms of PTSD, um, nightmares and sleep problems, wouldn't necessarily, uh, another physician wouldn't necessarily think that's PTSD. So we, we do encourage um, family physicians to ask about trauma uh, if there's been a change in someone's behavior. But PTSD uh, consists of four categories of symptoms. It's a severe stress disorder. The first category, what we call the re-experiencing symptoms, and so those those relate to Matt's nightmares that he was having. Uh, he also had unwanted memories of the incident coming to mind when he didn't want them to. The next category symptoms, which he's also spoken about, are what we call the avoidance symptoms, mm -hmm. and that's avoiding talking about it. Um, so that's quite common. Um, Matt had uh, a symptom of showing up at the site of the trauma but not remembering. Um, so that, that, that's a severe symptom. Um, and it's uh, what we also call dissociation, not being aware of your surroundings. Um, so that actually is more of a re-experiencing symptom. And the third category of symptom are negative alterations or alterations in mood and cognition. Uh, and Matt experienced that, so his mood was much lower. He described himself as becoming a recluse and giving up on things that to enjoy. And then the final set of symptoms, which Matt's touched on, uh, he called it the, the fight-flight and constantly being in that flight mode. So it's almost like his body was in overdrive and feeling like it had to be in overdrive to protect him from constant danger, although he was no longer in danger, but it felt to him his body was responding to the world as if he was in constant danger. So those are classic symptoms of PTSD. And when they go on for more than a month or a few months, 
it's chronic PTSD. And, and Matt actually was very lucky. Um, he um, was diagnosed about two years. I would say most people that I treat, there's usually 10 years after they've had their trauma. And that's just because there's not a lot of awareness of PTSD. And often when we present at our GP, we'll talk about the sleep problems or the depression and so it's not very easy for a GP to necessarily diagnose PTSD um, unless uh, they ask about uh, trauma and someone's background. How was it for you when you first sort of started speaking to the experts who knew about PTSD and hearing that your condition was actually quite common, like the, hearing what Jen was saying there about other people having the same symptoms? I, I found it quite surprising that it, PTSD can affect people at quite a massive broad spectrum. So in the early years, it was thought, it was thought of that it was just military didn't really see as, as in, in, a, in a wide spectrum in, in, in this country or in the world as it is, um, just people do, in car crashes. It's just that traumatic moment. Um, and I never thought of it like that. I didn't think that it would affect everyone in everyday life. The waiting list to get on the NHS was massively long and I was fortunate that I was put in touch with Jen um, initially and she offered me treatment. Can and you tell me about what that treatment involved? So um, I'd never heard of CBT before. Um, so when, when Jen explained it all to me, I was like, okay. I, I wanted some, um, not comfort, I wanted some face-to-face -face interaction with someone who knew. So yeah. that's why I thought, okay, this, this, this is perhaps the way forward for me. Um, so it's things like we would um, talk about the incident that happened. Um, I only remember the incident stopping at that point at the crash. Um, I never really carried the story on. Uh, I went to hospital. And for me, that was it. Um, I didn't really know what happened to the man. I didn't really know the extent of the injuries. There was there was a lot of information there that was missing. So for me, it was kind of nice to have someone focus on me as an individual and the issues I was dealing with. So we did things like um, exercises with where I would sit and talk about the incident. And then after every session, we would add bits of information to it. And so just carrying the story along. So it's like giving a child a book with a half-written story and saying, we need you to write the rest. Yeah. Um, and, it, and then you would find that child would perhaps remember the whole story then because they've been reading that half and then constantly rewriting and rewriting. And I enjoyed that. I thought it was quite a good process. So I'd get homework after every session, um, which every day just gave you time to forget about the world, and focus on you as an individual, but focus yeah. on what's happening to you. And there was um, case studies and stories in there of other people who were struggling with PTSD and their outcomes. So there was a lot of information there for me. Um, and it was information that was valid, not like going on the internet where you get lots of different information, lots of different points. It's information that was valid to me as an individual. Mm. And how was it when you first came to therapy and you were having to describe the incident? Uh, it was horrid. Uh, I, I make no bones about it. The, the, the guilt that I felt was insurmountable uh, and it was constant. Um, and to keep hold that in around your peers and your family and your friends and your loved ones was was difficult so when I came to sessions it was a, a massive impact on me as an individual and that's where I found afterwards my my senses were massively heightened I would to start with I used to find it difficult I'd go back home and it, I'd become a bit more reclusive um, and I wouldn't sleep even more because of what I'd said and what I described and just that uh, outflow of emotion. What's this idea behind the treatment where you're getting them to sort of finish the story, as Matt described. Why do you think that works? So we we call finishing the story. We actually we, we call it updating the trauma memory. When people have intrusive, unwanted memories of trauma, it's usually of the worst moment. 
and it stops at the worst moment. So when people even tell their trauma story, they always stop at the worst moment. And then I had this impact. And it's important to run it on. In, in many cases, the, the outcome is better than what people feared. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in some cases, like what Matt uh, described, uh, the worst fears do happen. So somebody is um, badly injured. But it's still important to run the story on because it gives a... It, it makes that, it brings in new information to update the memory so the memory is no longer this repetitive uh, replay of a, a worse moment, but it becomes updated with information that we know now, for example, that Matt survived, that the person who uh, was injured, he was very badly injured, he survived, he does have help, um, and he has a changed quality of life, but it's still possible for him to have quality of life. And I don't think it's possible with the kind of trauma that Matt or anybody who went through what Matt went through that they'd be able to spontaneously come to that conclusion. Mm-hmm. We did a lot of research, Matt and I did a lot of research together online looking at case examples of people who had a similar kind of injury and the kind of quality of life that they had today. And it's important to do that because it helps um, to reduce the sense of guilt um, because guilt can also destroy lives. And uh, it's often, we often feel guilty because we have superhuman standards about ourselves. And emergency workers are prone to having superhuman standards. And it's important to try to look at things with a more balanced point of view. And when we can do that, that reduces the sense of guilt. But coming back to the story, it's important to run the story on so it's not stopping at the worst moment. Uh, and that makes the memories much less intrusive. Does a lot of PTSD come from that feeling of guilt? Is that quite integral to um, feeling those symptoms? I think guilt is a consequence of trauma. It wouldn't necessarily be a predictor of having unwanted memories, Um, but certainly uh, people feel incredibly guilty after trauma, particularly if they survived and somebody else didn't. Um, that's quite common or if you feel you should have done something um, and you weren't able to and so it's really so in therapy we would really get into the nitty-gritty and look at different outcomes well what would have happened if you had taken this course of action or that course of action and usually what we find is the outcome would have been pretty much the same and it's important to get to that level of detail so that people can understand that and then that helps them to feel a little bit less guilty and it also stops the avoidance of the trauma memory which helps the the mind to emotionally process it. Matt when you think about um, the trauma that you experience now what kind of how do you view it after therapy? Um, It it has changed me as an individual Um, there's no two ways about it Um, I'm, I'm in an unfortunate position where I'm in a job I love and I'm quite passionate about the work I do and the work that my colleagues do too. Um, but I also know that there's perhaps a point where I could relapse because of the work I do. And knowing that uh, the information I've been given, um, my blueprint, um, the work I've done on the internet is there for me, it, it's kind of given me quite a, a quite a big boost. So it's kind of a... So when I think about the trauma itself now, I'm quite happy to sit and talk about it. Um, there's times when I do talk about it, it does catch me out. But I know... As I said before, it's never going to happen again. That I will never replicate that. Yeah. Um, and the support there now, the support network at work, the support network with, with Jen and other people and all the other agencies that are out there, I know that I'm in quite a good place. So, Jen, you have been creating this intervention for emergency workers like Matt. Can you describe that for me? 
So our intervention aims to target uh, predictors of post-traumatic stress and depression in emergency workers. So we, we have been really passionate about this for uh, almost 20 years, but uh, to make it a really potentially effective intervention, we first had to um, work with emergency workers who joined the service and assess them on a number of factors and then follow them for a number of years and then work out um, who became ill and who stayed healthy and what predicts PTSD and depression in that group. So we were able to identify predictors. So the main predictor of post-traumatic stress was a thinking style called dwelling. We all dwell. So most people will you know, most likely dwell about problems at work or in relationships. Um, if it's a, a style of thinking that an emergency worker shows in response to stressful events, they're, um, they're likely to develop PTSD in their career. Um, and our main predictor of depression um, was what we were calling resilience appraisal. So if somebody has unhelpful thoughts about resilience at the start of their career, they, they're more likely to develop an episode of depression uh, in their work as an emergency worker. So our intervention targets these predictors over a course of six weeks, and we then um, follow emergency workers for another two years, and we offer top-up training, which is very different to the interventions that are currently out there. The interventions that are available are what um, people in the community might think is helpful, so they're not necessarily based on this early rigorous research. So um, our intervention is based on modifying predictors of mental health problems. We also offer top-up training, and we're also going to follow people for a number of years um, to see uh, what develops over time because a lot of the interventions that have been assessed have a very, very short follow-up period and it's not enough time for problems to develop in that, that time frame. And what are the results you've seen so far? So far in our pilot work, we've seen really excellent results. So we've had two types of evaluations. Um, we first ran a lot of focus groups with emergency workers and got their uh, contribution to the material we were putting together and Matt was really instrumental in that. And then we ran a number of pilot studies um, with paramedics, and we saw um, reductions in rumination, the dwelling, and much more adaptive thoughts about resilience and uh, less anxiety, PTSD, and depression over time. What was it that interested you about emergency workers? Why did you focus on that particular group in your research? I'm, I'm really passionate about working with emergency workers because um, I admire uh, the work that they do, that they dedicate their lives to public health and safety, yet put themselves at risk of developing physical and mental health problems. And I think they're a group worthy of preventative work. And I think PTSD is something that can be prevented. It comes into play after trauma. Not everybody who goes through a trauma develops PTSD. So there is something at work there that we've been able to identify and create an intervention to um, target to protect people before they're exposed to trauma. So if people have these tools, then when they go through a critical incident or a cumulative stress at work and they can put these tools into place, it should protect them in the long run. Um, are there other knock-on benefits that can help society as a whole? So there are potentially huge um, benefits to an intervention like this. So we're um, evaluating with the help of MQ the impact of this intervention on health functioning, and in particular on immune functioning. Um, so if the, it's, there's a 
a potential for the intervention to improve someone's immunity over time. So that eventually is going to lead to cost savings to the NHS, not just because this person may, or emergency workers may be healthier from an immune perspective, but also their mental health is likely to be much healthier, which means that there'll be cost savings uh, to society because uh, individuals will take up fewer resources within the NHS. How have you been involved with research with Jen? Um, so I joined the Blue Right Resilience with Jen, um, which helps all emergency services. Um, and we put together little packs to send out to them just to give them some more information, some pre- preventive information about the stresses they're going to face. So since this, this trauma, it's kind of, it has hurt me in, in, for a long time, but now I'm at a point where I want to do more research. I want to be involved in more research. I want to help others yeah. that are struggling, and I want people to understand that it's it's not it's not something people should frown upon. People should come out and talk about it. Um, I would like to see things like this, where people are recruited into the emergency services, mm. that this kind of information is given them from day one. Um, they get taught to run out hose, put ladders up, but they also need to be told... These are the kind of things you're going to experience and need some information that can help you. So, Jen, what's the next steps with your research and where would you like to take it? So our next steps are to formally evaluate uh, the intervention that we've developed in a randomised controlled trial. So we're doing a, a very large study of about 600 newly recruited paramedics. Um, we begin um, recruitment in September and we'll follow people through uh, for another two years and we'll also look at the, the biological functioning and the effect of the intervention on immunity. Um, after that, uh, depending on the results, we would hope to modify it for the different services. So this has been developed um, for student paramedics, then we would want to modify it for firefighters and police officers, make those modifications and roll it out uh, much more widely and um, disseminate once we've done that within the UK to go even wider than that, more globally. And do you think that PTSD could be prevented? I absolutely think PTSD can be prevented because um, the majority of people who, when they go through a trauma, trauma, don't develop PTSD. There is a natural recovery. We know that trauma has to be in play for PTSD to develop. We know that emergency workers are going to be exposed to critical incidents and stress in their career. We know what the predictors of these problems are. It's really about modifying and working with those predictors and giving emergency workers enough information and enough tools and enough practice before they're exposed to chronic stressors in their career to keep them healthy and well. And I I think that we will see that we can prevent PTSD. Mm. What about you, Matt, as someone who's experienced it firsthand? Yeah, I mean, when I joined the fire service, I didn't there wasn't anything like this on my, on my recruits course uh, where during those course was it mentioned about the mental health it wasn't something that was approached it wasn't something that was spoken about um, and when I look back at it now I find it quite bizarre that perhaps if if the information was given to people beforehand as they join um, and kind of topped up through their career I think it would be quite a benefit and I think it could could stop people going off with illnesses, people going off with stress. And what difference has your work with Jen had on your life? It's made a massive impact in my life. Um, I'm perhaps fitter and healthier than I've ever been. There's things I notice in others as well that perhaps I've never noticed before when someone's having a bad day. It's kind of something I'll spot quite easier. It's just made me quite a, I would say, brighter and a happier individual than, than I used to be. Looking back over your life and your career, what do you wish you'd known about well-being when you joined the fire service? Uh, I wish I'd known that 
it's okay to talk. I think that's the big, big issue. Um, I think being open from day one, if I'd have been open from day one, I perhaps I, there would have been more support there for me. Another brigade had been um, massively supportive. Um, but if I'd have been open and honest from day one, I think that I wouldn't have got to the point where I got to. I wouldn't have got to that point where I've missed so much time with my children, so much um, time socialising. Um, I think I've missed out quite a lot in those those few years where mm. I was, I'm not going to say ill, when I was quite in a bad place. Uh, and I think if I'd spoken about it or had the heart to speak about it and, and not fear that I would be judged or, you know, it would be frowned upon by my peers, then perhaps, you know, I would have been a lot... It would have been... A, a, that whole traumatic event would have been a lot easier for me. Well, I really hope that the intervention continues to be a success and that emergency workers can receive the support they need. Thank you both so much for joining me for MQ's Open Mind today. If you've been affected by what we've spoken about today and would like to speak to someone about your mental health, you can call the Samaritans on 116 123. Thank you.